0: Amen. Love that response in the last stanza. Of, oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose, and let my boast forever be only you. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. It's been a few weeks, a couple weeks since we've been in Romans 6, but we'll be finishing off the chapter today. Looking forward to that. Thankful for Dr. Mitchell coming in last week and preaching. Trust that was a blessing to you all. Continue to keep our, all our missionaries in prayer as they serve the Lord in various contexts. We left off two weeks ago in verse 14, and we said that verse 14 contains a promise. Romans 6, 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. And we said that this promise is what grounds some of the things he's been saying. He says, don't present your members as slaves to sin, but present yourselves to God. Why? Because after all, you are free from sin. That's the promise of verse 14. And, And he says that we can be confident sin will not have dominion over us because, end of verse 14, you are not under law, but under grace. A couple of weeks ago we said that to be under law is to be in desperate need of righteousness, to have your sin exposed and condemned by the law and yet be unable to do anything about it. Being under grace, on the other hand, is to be unified with Christ in his death and resurrection and thus for sin to have no claim on you. And so in our text today, what we're going to see is that Paul is going to raise a question and answer it that stems from this statement. You're not under law, but you're under grace. So as I read verses 15 through 23, I'd encourage you to think about what is the question that Paul is asking, and how is he responding to that question? Verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 6.23 is one of the most famous verses in the book of Romans. But I hope that by the end of our time together today, we'll see how that verse functions within the flow of Paul's thought. But before we get into things, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, without your grace, without your spirit illumining us, we cannot hope to understand your word. We might try to understand it on some sort of intellectual level, but Lord, for it to get into our hearts, we need your spirit. I pray that you would do that this morning, right now, in Jesus' name, amen. As I was preparing this week, I came across a little story online that someone posted, This person writes, last week my boss discovered the motivational quote, only in the dictionary does success come before work. Get it right, success, work. He ordered a large banner for our work area with an improved version of the quote. The banner reads, only in the dictionary does success come before hard work. Hard, I'm not sure that hard actually goes before the dictionary. Yeah, yeah, i hopefully get that. If you've been in the workforce for any length of time, you know that there are good bosses, you know that there are bad bosses, and anywhere in between. I have a really good boss, okay? (laughs) But when it comes to bosses, there's a very simple truth. You're only obligated to serve your boss, or by extension, your boss's boss. You're not obligated to serve an old boss. You're not obligated to serve the boss that you might have at some point in the future. You're not obligated to serve your friend's boss. You are supposed to listen to and do what your boss tells you to do. But while that may be obvious in the workforce, we do this weird thing when it comes to our spiritual lives, and that's that we serve a boss that we don't work for anymore as Christians. We often serve our old boss. We let the boss from the previous job, as it were, boss us around. In short, we often serve sin rather than God. Our text fleshes out this problem that we sometimes serve our old master, and unsurprisingly, Paul's not okay with that. He doesn't say, okay, no big deal. But Paul doesn't merely tell us, don't serve sin. He tells us why. And we can sum up what Paul is saying in this text, as as well as really summing up the entire sermon with a very simple statement. So here's the whole text and the whole sermon in one statement. Because God is my new and better master, I must serve him. Because God is my new and better master. you need both aspects of that. I must serve him instead of sin. Now, you might say, "That, that sounds kind of obvious. I, 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 that's not surprising can I just tune out now if that's all you're gonna say <laughs> well obviously I'm not going to say that I would like you to tune out of what I'm saying but here's why in our Christian lives it's important to remember that reasons that the Bible gives us for some either attitude or way we should be living the reasons we do things also double as motivations If the reason we should do something gets deep into our souls, here's why I'm doing this, that helps us actually want to do it more. So as Paul tells us why we should not serve sin but should instead serve God, he's not merely listing off our arguments and trying to win a case. He's also providing us motivation. He's providing us fuel so that when we have the opportunity to either serve sin or serve God, we can remember these reasons we're going to talk about and hopefully choose to serve God instead of sin. We saw some of these a few weeks ago, and here in our text we'll see a couple more reasons to serve God rather than sin. The first reason is that God is my new master. God is my new master. I said that's the the big part of this, this whole sermon. God is my new and better master, so I should serve him instead of sin. So that's really what verses 15 through 20 are focusing on. 20 is kind of a transitional verse. I've lumped it in with the first section here. Um, but these, these verses focus on the new master that we have and how we should offer our service to him. So before we dig into this explanation too much, let's really consider the question that Paul poses in verse 15. Because I said a couple minutes ago, he has this question he asks. So verse 15, he asks this question. What then, in light of what I just said, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. So he he gives away the answer to the question. By no means. Absolutely not. But the question is, why not sin if if, if we're under grace instead of law? Now, why does Paul feel like he needs to address this? I mean, why does he ask the question? Hasn't he tackled this enough at this point in the chapter? I mean, with all the, you know, shall we sin that grace may abound stuff? It's a very similar question to what he asks at the beginning of the chapter. Well, like any good speaker, Paul knows his audience. He knows that in the church of Rome, there was an ethnic diversity. There was both Jews and Gentiles in the church of Rome. And Paul realizes that when he says, you're not under law anymore, at the end of verse 14, the Jew who grew up keeping the law with all its rituals and traditions That might make them a little antsy. The Jew might say something like, wait a second, Paul, if if we aren't under law anymore, then what's left to keep sin in check? Don't you see all these Gentiles here? They're itching for an excuse to sin, they might think. Paul, maybe you need to back off on the grace talk. On the other hand, Paul also realizes that there are Gentiles in the church of Rome. And that it is a very real possibility that some of them, or really anyone in the church, might take what he's saying and twist it. Some people might hear, you're not under law but under grace, and say, yeah, I can live however I want. Now I'm I'm probably oversimplifying a little bit here. There could have been some Jews and Gentiles in the other camps, potentially. I'm not saying every single Jew in Rome was like this and every single Gentile in Rome was like this. But since Paul brings up this question in verse 15, I think it's safe to assume he, 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 he uh, assumed that both of these types of parties would be present those who overemphasize law and those who abuse grace in order to excuse sin. But rather than point fingers this morning, I'd like us to hold up a little mirror. Because both of those mentalities can be present in our own lives. I mean, we've talked for a couple weeks in Romans 6 about how easy it is for us to excuse sin. The first sermon I preached in Romans 6, we really emphasized that. And, and we do. We sometimes think, well, God will forgive me later. I can do this thing. I can think this way. I can speak this way. I can neglect this thing that I should be doing. Ah, God will forgive me in the future. And we excuse sin. But the fact is, we can also be like the other party in Rome. The law-focused party. Now, we might not get antsy when people talk about grace. We all love to sing about grace. But I wonder if our actions reveal that sometimes we gravitate to law more often than we'd like to admit. Do you ever find that when sin knocks you out that you kind of linger on the mat a little bit, (laughs) holding yourself down, trying to make yourself guilty enough to get reaccepted by God, as it were? That's a mindset of law not of grace. Grace says you're forgiven. Or, or maybe do you find that you tend to emphasize God's commands, the do's and the don'ts, to the exclusion of truth about who God is and what God has done. That's a mindset of law, not of grace. Of course there are commands, but when we focus on those things to the exclusion of who God is and what he's done, we've missed a huge thing. And it's a person with this kind of mindset who asks a question like verse 15. Paul, if what you're saying is true, that I'm not under law anymore, that I'm now under grace, what's gonna keep people from sinning? I'm not totally sold on this grace stuff because it seems like the implication of grace is that people can do whatever they want. By Paul raising and addressing the question of verse 15, he is reaffirming and cementing the truth that we're not under law but under grace. By raising this question, he's giving himself an opportunity to defend his grace-filled theology by demonstrating how grace does not minimize or excuse sin. He's going to take that argument off the table. And as he does so, at the same time, he's also going to make it clear that grace must not be twisted to indulge our sinful passions. So when we find ourselves being a little too law-centric in our mindset, or excusing sin in our lives, what should we do about it? Back off on grace? Try to balance our excusing of sin with a nice dose of law? No. We must dive deeper into grace and our new identity that we have because of Christ. And we'll see now how Paul does that because Paul doesn't back off of grace and say, you know, yeah, okay, you're right. let Let me make sure that we're not taking grace let me, let me make sure we're not overemphasizing grace too much. No, he goes deeper into grace and appeals to our new identity as slaves of God. Are we to continue- are, are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. In verse 16, then, as Paul begins to answer the question, we'll see that he's going to lay out a principle in this verse that has to do with your identity reflecting your. Uh, your, your loyalties, your service, revealing your loyalties, as it were. Verse 16, Paul, as he starts to answer the question, should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Here's the beginning of his answer. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So the principle Paul's laying out in verse 16 is that your service reveals your loyalty. If you present yourself as loyal to someone, you say, Here I am, do with me what you want, then for all practical purposes, they are your master. There's a couple different ways that you could look at this verse. On the one hand, Paul might be saying that if you continually offer yourself to sin, repeatedly engaging in patterns of sinful behavior without repentance and remorse, then you are revealing your spiritual condition as someone who has never been set free from sin, that you're, that you're not actually a genuine Christian. He, he might be getting at that. It certainly is a biblical concept. On the other hand, Paul might be saying that as believers, when we present ourselves to sin, we're opening ourselves up to being controlled by it. Kind of a similar thought to verse 12, where he says, don't let sin reign in you if you offer yourself to sin, you are letting sin reign. For all practical purposes, sin is your master again. Not in a legal or relational sense, but in a practical sense. But either way, whatever the particular nuance of what he's saying is, the larger point is clear. And that is that the person you serve, that you offer yourself to, that you obey, that is the person who is functioning as your master. You act as either a slave of sin or as a slave of obedience. Now, that phrase might feel a little funny, he's been talking about being a slave of God all this time, but by saying slave of obedience, he's just saying a slave of God, but by using the word obedience, it allows him to kind of bring out the, the nuance of, we're talking about the practical aspects here of living out my faith, obedience, obeying the new master. So when you see slave of obedience, it's a slave of God but with the focus and the emphasis on being uh, uh, of of obedience. In this verse, Paul implies that everyone is a slave to someone, either of sin or of God. True independence for a human being is a misnomer. Now, I grew up in New Hampshire. The state motto there is live free or die. (laughs) Pretty intense, although I saw a commercial the other day for. Uh, New Hampshire tourism, and it just ended with live free. <laughs> I thought oh, They're getting a little soft, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, in America, we we love our freedoms, right? It's the land of the free. I mean, we're about to celebrate Independence Day next week. We value our rights and our freedoms, the ability to do our own thing. But true spiritual freedom is not ultimate independence or autonomy or doing our own thing because true independence is impossible. Everyone is either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. Jesus said something similar in Matthew five twenty four, which is our scripture reading today. You can't serve two masters. Why? Because you will either hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. In that case, he's talking about God or money as the two masters. But the principle holds true far beyond that. You can't serve two masters. Don't think that you can dabble in sin on Saturday and then put on your spiritual clothes on Sunday. God isn't interested in double agents who sweep their sin on the rug as easily as they put their check in the offering plate. Is that you? Who are you serving? Paul says that you are a slave of the one whom you obey. And then in verse 16 he continues, he, when in verse 16 he highlights that these two masters have two very different results. One is death, the other is righteousness. Now, we'll talk more about these ultimate results of serving the two masters in a few minutes, but for now, let's just note that the old master of sin, he says, leads to death itself. So the implication for us is, why would we pretend that sin is our master still when he's that kind of master? One who drags people to their eternal grave, either of sin, which leads to death, Or, on the other hand, of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The result of serving our new master is ultimately righteousness. And Paul says that those who are slaves of righteousness are those who see eternal life. So verse 16 kind of establishes this principle that our service reveals our master. But now let's look at verses 17 through 18, where he really gets into this idea of God being our new master. 17, but thanks be... To God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He says, so verse 16. He's saying, don't forget that whoever you present yourself to, that's who's your master. But thanks be to God, sin is not your master. You've been set free from sin if you are a believer. Verse 17 begins with the phrase, thanks be to God. I love this. He just has to interject that that exclamation of gratitude. What Paul is saying is real to him. It's not stale theology to him or dry philosophy. He is explaining real, life-altering, soul-stirring truths. And this exclamation of gratitude in verse 17 shows that Paul really believes what he's saying. He grasps just how awesome it is. Thanks be to God. Doxology flows from theology. Praise to God, that's doxology, when we praise God. That springs from truth about God, theology. So when we find that our praise is lacking, when we, when we have a hard time saying thanks be to God, then it's probably because we're not grasping some sort of truth about God. That we're not believing the, the, the truths about what Christ has done for us or applying them to our lives. Just as an aside, this is one reason that we sing hymns in our church because hymns package theology in rich, poetic, memorable ways and so stir our hearts to praise. But that's just a, kind of a little aside there with his exclamation Thanks be to God. What is it that Paul is thanking God for? That you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. That you're not slaves anymore, he says, to sin. The Roman Christians are those who have become obedient from the heart. He's saying that they have heard and received the gospel. And from the deepest part of them, that's their hearts, he says, they've begun to live out those lives of obedient slaves to righteousness. Again, he uses that word obedience because the old question he's trying to answer is, how are we supposed to live? And we are supposed to live obediently. So he keeps on importing this word obedience into his argument to, to emphasize that, yeah, Christians should live a certain way. But he's emphasizing it in the context of who our real master is. Sin is not of the master of a genuine Christian. On the other hand, God is. Verse 18 goes on to say that Christians are free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. In a few minutes we'll sing together, slaves no more, we are free. But again, remember, freedom is not autonomy. Autonomy. Paul praises God that he's not only rescued Christians from their slavery to sin, but he has brought them into slavery to righteousness, to rightness, as it were. And so now looking down into verse 19, Paul acknowledges that he's using metaphorical language. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. You guys can't quite figure this out, he says, so I'm using the metaphor of slavery and masters and this kind of thing. And now, after acknowledging that, he's going to take these truths and turn them into an imperative. Okay, so here are are these truths. We serve a new master. What should we do about it? Verse 19, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, here's the imperative, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul talks about how we used to present our members to impurity, moral uncleanness before God. And that may sound really big and kind of spiritually, but we do that all the time. When we use our tongues for wrong things, when we look at things we shouldn't, when we pursue sin instead of God, impurity. Lawlessness, living in opposition to what God has commanded, one without law. Paul's saying that when we lived in that kind of lifestyle, it just spun out more and more lawlessness. Impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. But Paul says that's the way that Christians used to live, and we are not to live that way anymore. Instead, he says, we must present ourselves as slaves to righteousness, to a a way of a life of right living before God. And he says that righteousness leads to sanctification, to progressively becoming more and more like God. He says that we need to live out our new position as slaves of righteousness. Our lives, in short, need to demonstrate who our new master is. In 2013, the Florida Gators football team was playing Georgia Southern. And if you watch the replay of this one particular infamous play, there's something very off, comically off. (laughs) Two of the Florida players, rather than blocking the other team, are inexplicably blocking each other. (laughs) They're pushing against each other, even though they're wearing the same jersey. They just got mixed up somehow. Though both these players wear the Florida jersey, one of them is accidentally playing for the wrong side. It's comical for a football player to act, momentarily act like he's on the other team. It's tragic when a slave of righteousness acts like he's a slave to sin. If someone looked at your life, would they know which team you're on? Who would they think is in charge? Sin or obedience? impurity, lawlessness, or righteousness. You might wear the right jersey. You might genuinely be a Christian. But in what ways, ask yourself, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, in what ways are you switching sides (laughs) and acting like you're still a member of the other team? Because you have a new master, you must serve him. Now, if we've been following what Paul has been saying, it would be easy to think, wow, that that sounds like a lot. (laughs) I thought being a Christian was all about freedom. But now you're telling me I'm a slave to God? Interestingly, Paul acknowledges this in verse 20. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, yeah, you were free in regard to righteousness. He says, it's as if Paul is admitting, yeah, it's true that before you were rescued, righteousness wasn't your master. It's not that you shouldn't have obeyed righteousness, but rather that ultimately you couldn't. Righteousness wasn't your boss before you were a Christian, he says in verse 20. Sin was. And now, verse 21 is going to begin with the word but, implying some sort of contrast, right? So what we'll see now is that verse 21 is really answering, there's like an unspoken question that exists between verse 20 and 21. And and here's how the question goes. He says, verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Here's the unspoken question that Paul's going to answer. If I used to be free from the master known as righteousness, verse 20, why is it worth serving him now? If I'm going to serve a master one way or the other... What makes serving God so much better than serving sin? What's Paul's answer to that? Well, God is worth serving not merely because he's a new master. God is also worth serving because he's a better master. So, so much better. And this is the second reason in our text for why we need to serve God rather than sin. Because God is a better master. Verses 21 through 23 contrast these two masters by focusing on their results. What does serving sin ultimately bring about? What does serving God ultimately bring about? This is what he's going to answer. And when you examine these results, there's no question that God is a far better master than sin. So let's start in these last few verses by considering our, the inferior, old master. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul says that when we labored in the vineyard of sin, when we were sin slaves, we produced certain fruits, wrong actions. Thoughts, behaviors, attitudes. We could say that when we were slaves of sin, we were bad at goodness and good at badness. Paul said that these fruits from our pre-Jesus life produced shame in us. They are a shameful thing, he says. I'm sure we can all think of things in our past that we're not proud of. But Paul goes beyond shame and says that when these fruits are eaten, they bring about a certain terrible result. Because when you eat bad fruit, you get bad results. When you eat good fruit, you get good results. We've got some nice blueberry bushes in our yard. They have done wonderfully despite me touching them, which is, which is great. It's the best of both worlds. Um, but when you eat a blueberry, a nice ripe blueberry, it gives you good results. It's sweet. It tastes good. gives you a little bit of nutrients. Um, On the other hand, if you eat a berry that is poisonous, you get bad results. I I didn't realize until this week that apparently holly berries are very, very not not good for you. (laughs) If you eat them as pretty as they are, there's some bad results that will happen. Bad fruit, bad results. Paul says that before we were saved, the sinful fruit in our lives brought about a devastating result. And that is death. This isn't just talking about physical death, although that's probably included. But in verses twenty two and twenty-three, Paul talks about eternal life. That's the contrast. It's with eternal life. So it stands to reason then that here we're talking about the flip side of that, which would be eternal death. Separation from hell, separation from God in hell. For eternity. I don't like talking about hell. Frankly, I don't really like thinking about it. But we need to talk about death and even eternal death. I echo what the atheist Penn Gillette has said when discussing Christians who don't evangelize. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody To believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that I mean if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and the truck was bearing down on you there is a certain point where I tackle you and this is more important than that we as Christians must not back down from talking about eternal death because scripture teaches us that it's real And if it's real then we need to consider it soberly, and not be afraid of it, not be ashamed to talk about it. In verse 23, Paul says that sin pays a wage to its laborers. But that wage is none other than death. I mean, what a nasty image. You come to sin after a lifelong labor in his service, And with biting mockery in his voice, he says, Thank you very much. Here's what you're owed. He hands you a paycheck and emblazoned across it in all caps is the word DEATH. Sin has a wage. And it's awful. Friend, if you're here, maybe you're watching online, and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, then this passage makes it clear that you are laboring for a fruit that brings about a terrible result. Your sin earns you a wage that you do not want to receive. I don't say this out of malice or scorn, but out of sincerity and love. Take your spiritual state seriously. It may seem nice to live like you want, but a lifetime of sin is a blink compared to an eternity of suffering. God is a God of justice, and He cannot remain a good God if He does not punish evil. And so He allows sin to dole out its wages day after day as souls who have not taken refuge in His Son pass into eternity. Have you been set free from sin? Have you repented of your sin recognizing your utter inability to save yourself? Have you put your trust, your faith, your hope, and the death of Christ in your place and the hope of His resurrection? Today can be the day of your salvation. Life is available. If you've got questions about this, or even if you're just not confident about your spiritual state, I'd encourage you to Come catch me after the service, to get in touch with Pastor Sweat, to talk to a godly Christian that you know. Have a conversation about it. Ask the Lord to make your own spiritual state very clear to you because we must take the ultimate result of sin very seriously. In the context of this verse, though, Paul is not trying to frighten us into obedience. Rather, he is showcasing how much more awesome our new master is than our old one. We are freed from our inferior old master who but paid us a wage of death. And now we serve a superior new master. Verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now. But now that you have been set free from sin, it's not your master anymore. Now that you have been set free from sin and have instead become slaves of God, here's the result. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. When you labor in the vineyard of your new master, of God himself, you get good fruit. It's the fruit of a holy life. He says, progressive sanctification. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. A gradual becoming more and more like Christ. You don't have to be characterized by sin anymore. You get a better fruit, a shame-free fruit, holiness. And as you serve your new master, you get a life that is set apart to God. But what happens when you eat the fruit of sanctification, as it were. What is the result? What is the end of sanctification? Paul says that it is none other than eternal life, life that death itself cannot prevent. Verse 23 says that this eternal life is a gift. Unlike the wicked master sin who but gives a deserved wage, Our gracious master, God, gives a free gift, one that is undeserved. None of us could ever merit eternal life. Our sin means that we're not worthy of it. But God, in his boundless mercy and grace, offers it to us freely as a gift. I love that stanza we sang earlier. He speaks, and listening to his voice, New life the dead receive. It's almost like Lazarus, where Jesus is standing outside the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out. The mournful broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. God offers eternal life, never-ending life. What a gift. But I love what Paul says. Verse 23 gets a lot of the, the air time, but I love verse 22 as well. Paul says that eternal life has an end, or, or it is the end, excuse me. The, it's the ultimate result of something, of sanctification, of becoming more like Christ. Sanctification and its end, eternal life. It's not that by working hard you earn eternal life. No, it's a free gift. He makes that very clear. But the end result of sanctification is, is eternal life brothers and sisters your war against sin has an end date your sanctification will one day be completed all the striving all the battles against sin all the temptation all the running again and again when you fall to the same thing for the millionth time it'll all be over shall not fear the day when death arrives, the time at last when we shall be like Christ. We have a master who gives us good fruit, fruit of gradually becoming more and more holy until we step into his very presence. John puts it this way in 1 John 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Oh, that day when free from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Christian, have courage today. Remember that the war you wage against sin is a victorious one, and it will not last forever. Someday the enemy will flee, the shadows will lift, and peace will reign. We need to know one more thing from these verses. At the end of verse 23, we see how this gift is possible. Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. This ties right back to the beginning of the chapter. It's only through being unified with Christ by faith that we can have eternal life. He has died for our sin, and when he died, our old self died too. He's risen again, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. We have the hope of glorious resurrection in the future. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. And to the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. Christ robbed the grave its wages by receiving the wage himself on the cross. And now he has given us a gift far more gracious than the vicious wage of sin, his eternal life. It is in Jesus' death and resurrection that grace has spoken. Life has broken in and consequently, we belong to him. FABC family, If God is our new master and he is this outrageously, unimaginably better than our old master, how can we do anything else but serve him rather than sin? Let's pray. Father, these are sobering truths. Impress them deep on our souls. Lord, for any who do not know you as their Savior, pray that you would wake them up to the reality of their spiritual condition and the results that it will bring. May we not be deceived into thinking that we can continually live in sin. Lord, let us live today in light of these truths. Help us to serve you with every part of us, holding nothing back, even being willing to do the, the difficult work of sifting through sin in our lives, not in a way to just pound ourselves into submission, but rather because we are free from sin and we have a new master, one who is gracious and kind one who has adopted us into his very family. May this motivate us to serve you more and better. In Jesus' name, amen.